Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Holly, were you ever a Girl Scout? No, I was a campfire girl. Really? Yeah, and I actually, like, um, for many years... I was pretty snooty about that fact. I was really. <laughs> I was a campfire girl when I lived outside of Seattle when I was little, and then we moved to Florida, and the only option was Girl Scouts. And I may have made some disparaging comments about how I thought my uniform was a lot sharper than the Girl Scout ones, but that's because <laughs> I was a, not a nice child, just like I am as an adult. I was a brownie, and that was as far as I got. Because for reasons I really cannot put my finger on at this point, you know, almost 40 years later, I didn't enjoy brownies as much. Uh, And I was also in 4-H, and when I was getting ready to move up in school, my mom was like, we should pick one of these two activities. And I picked 4-H rather than going on farther with the Girl Scouts. Gotcha. But anyway. That was probably smarter than what I did, which was always just add more activities. (laughs) Just like I do as an adult. (laughs) Yeah, my mom was the person who was responsible for all of the driving when it came to these kinds of activities. So I think this was largely my mom wanting one less thing to have to ship us all the way from way out in the country to slightly less far out in the country. (laughs) Anyway, we're having this conversation because today... We have the extremely frequent listener request of Juliet Gordon-Lowe, who was the founder of the Girl Scouts of the United States of America. And when I say a frequent listener request, this is just from the last couple of years of email and our Twitter mentions, and it has come from Becky, Camille, Sarah, Katie, Anna, Allison, Lindsay, Nicola, and Amy. And I know farther back in the world of things we can no longer really search easily, there are other people who have asked for us to talk about her. Aside from the fact that so many people have asked us to talk about Juliet Gordon-Lowe, really a lot of things about her life surprised me and are very different from what I imagined her life to be like before getting into this. If the only pictures of her you have seen are the ones from later in her life in her scout uniform, she looks like an almost totally different person from her pictures from her youth. So I was very intrigued by all that. Juliet Gordon-Lowe was born Juliet McGill Kinsey Gordon on October 31st, 1860. She was nicknamed Daisy, and that's still the name that she's known by in much of the world of Girl Scouts, as well as by some of her biographers. Uh, and her parents were William Washington Gordon II and Eleanor Kinsey Gordon, who was known as Nellie. Juliet was the second of six children. Her siblings were Eleanor, Alice, William, Mabel, and Arthur. The family were committed Episcopalians who attended Christ Church in Savannah, Georgia. The Gordons were a really good example of how one family could have complicated loyalties during the U.S. Civil War. William's family had been in Georgia for generations, and part of their wealth came from the cotton industry. So in addition to having an enslaved workforce at the Gordon home, their income was coming from enslaved labor. But then Nellie's family conversely went all the way back to the founders of Chicago, Illinois, and in general, they were opposed to slavery, and some of them were dedicated abolitionists. So in very broad strokes, Nellie's and William's families were on opposite sides of the war. The men in Nellie's family served in the U.S. military, while William served for the Confederacy. But at the same time, it was more complicated than that. 
Nellie gradually came to believe that the war was necessary for Southern independence and that Southern independence itself was necessary. But even then, after Savannah surrendered, she entertained people like U.S. General William Tecumseh Sherman at the family home. Juliet, of course, was only six months old when the war started, so she was too young to really understand what was going on for most of it. As she became a toddler, though, she was just fiercely loyal to her father and sure that whatever he was doing was the right thing. Nellie Gordon and the children went to Chicago for the last few months of the war, and by the time they arrived, the whole family was malnourished. Juliet was also extremely sick with what her mother described as brain fever, and this was kind of a catch-all term that included serious illnesses like meningitis and encephalitis. Juliet eventually recovered from this illness, but she was chronically ill for most of her life. She contracted malaria sometime in her youth, and she was prone to earaches and ear infections that could cause her to temporarily lose some or all of her hearing. These ear infections and her malaria tended to recur anytime she was exhausted or stressed or sick with something else. And she was also prone to abscesses, including in her ears. And then later on in her life, she developed gout. Once the Civil War was over, the Gordons returned to Savannah. And from that point, overall, Juliet had a happy childhood. The family had to adjust to a new economy, one that did not rely on enslaved labor. But Juliet was not really conscious of this shift. She was accident-prone and eccentric, which led her family to start calling her Crazy Daisy. Her eccentricity also carried over to her written correspondence, which tended to have so many spelling mistakes that historians have speculated that she actually had a learning disability. Yeah, there are scans of a lot of her letters online, and in addition to there being a lot of mistakes, there is a lot of talk about the mistakes and how many there are. She also had a very kind and generous heart. She and her friends liked to put on plays and sell tickets to them to raise money for charities, including some that were set out to help Native Americans. One of her favorite plays to stage was about Mary, Queen of Scots. Another of her childhood projects included a short-lived club called Helping Hands, which was meant to help people who were less fortunate than they were. But this club had to be disbanded during an epidemic of yellow fever. You could describe some of her childhood work as it's the thought that counts. Some of Juliet's family called Helping Hands helpless hands because, for example, they wanted to make clothes to donate to a family in need, but they really didn't know how to do that, so... The results of their labors were not really wearable items. <laughs> yeah, they were they were trying to make clothes for people and they did they didn't really know how to sew. Starting when she was 12, Juliet was educated in a series of boarding schools, two of them in Virginia, one in New Jersey, and then a French finishing school called Mesdemoiselles Charbonnier in New York City. She made several very close friends in these schools, including Abby Lippett and Mary Gail Carter, who were her very best friends for the rest of her life. She also studied art in New York, including sculpture and painting, and she became very good at painting onto China. In 1880, tragedy struck the Gordon family. Juliet's 17-year-old sister, Alice, died of scarlet fever. The entire family was grief-stricken. Juliet's older sister, Eleanor, was away in Europe. So since Juliet was then the oldest daughter at home, she had to keep things running while her mother was consumed with grief. Juliet also tried to keep her chin up and soothe the rest of the family's heartbreak. That, on its own, would have just been a huge load to try to shoulder. But to make things even harder, Juliet's mother interpreted her sort of soldiering on as evidence that she wasn't all that sad about her sister. Nellie accused Juliet of being selfish and shallow, 
And Juliet knew that in her own words, quote, there is more than one kind of sorrow, and that born in silence is not less genuine because it is not always seen. But Juliet also did worry that maybe her sister Alice had died thinking that she didn't love her. I feel like this whole thing is, like, evidence of how grief can just mess with people. Like, I'm, Oh, yeah. I'm sure her mom also was seeing that through a veil of her own grief and, like, did not have the magnanimity of heart available to be like, oh, no, this is just how she's doing it. Um, yeah. It's tricky. Well, and they had, they they sort of butted heads a lot for, for pretty much all of of Juliet's life. They they had personalities that conflicted with each other a lot of times in, in ways that could just come off as seeming like they were angry at each other, but it was really more like they just had different ways of approaching the world. Oh, the misunderstandings of family. Uh, but in the midst of all of this emotional turmoil, Juliet became acquainted with William McKay Lowe. His family had previously been the Gordons' neighbors in Savannah, but they had moved to England in 1867. Because Juliet's father, brother, and now love interest were all named William, uh, we're going to call this William by his nickname of Billow, just to try to simplify a little bit. Yeah, (laughs) especially because we're going to get to parts where multiple Williams are in the same room. Billow was very handsome, and he listened to all of Juliet's grief about her sister and her frustrations with her relationship with her mother, Juliet compared these conversations with him to her most intimate friendships with her girlfriends in boarding school. Less than three months after Alice's death, Juliet was deeply in love with Billow. And she was also ashamed of those feelings because she thought that she should really still be mourning her sister and not finding joy with a young man. On top of that, she knew that her family was not going to approve of this match. The Gordons were very well off, but they also valued hard work, and Billow did not. He was set to inherit a massive fortune when his father died, and he had no plans to work at all. And Billow's family wouldn't have approved of Juliet either. Billow's father had made it clear that he did not want his son to marry an American or marry during his own lifetime at all. So Juliet and Billow courted in secret. They wrote to each other after Billow went back to England, but eventually he stopped writing to her. And at first, Juliet just thought something must have gotten misdirected or lost in the mail. But as time went on, with still no more letters, she became determined to go see him and find out what was going on. To that end, in 1882, Juliet convinced her parents to let her take a tour of Europe, as her older sister had done. But really, she was on a secret mission to find Billow and get him to answer for his behavior. And we're going to talk about all of that after we first pause for a little sponsor break. So, as we said earlier, the Gordons and the Lowe's had been neighbors back in Savannah. They were family friends. So, it was reasonable for Juliet to go call on Billow's sisters while she was in England. She did do that. She paid them a visit. She did not tell them why she was really there. It turned out that Billow was not home that day, but Juliet did manage to take a look around the house and find his room. His mirror was covered with letters and sketches that she had sent to him, but not from anything from her more recent correspondence. She concluded that Billow's father had discovered their letters and was keeping her mail from him. Juliet went on her tour of the European continent, but she was driven to distraction by the thought of seeing Billow the whole time. She finally resigned herself to the idea that it just wasn't going to happen. 
Shortly before she returned home, she sent him a telegram that said, Goodbye, I sail on the gala. But then, in a dramatic turn of events, just before the ship set sail, one of the crew brought her a telegram of her own, and it was from Billow, who revealed that he had been looking for her as well. This is such a good movie moment. And it did lift Juliet's spirits, but not for long. She decided that a relationship with Billow just could not work out. Both of their families objected. And on top of that, Billow was going to spend the next few years studying at Oxford. Juliet, though, was, I mean, she was an available, attractive, lovely young woman. And on the way home, she caught the eye of another passenger on the ship. This was a captain who fell for her completely. But as soon as she realized that he was serious about her, Juliet rejected him. Because if she could not have Billow, she did not want anyone She had made her formal debut into society, and after getting home again, she received other proposals as well, and she turned all of them down. Two years later, one of Juliet's sisters got married, and that brought all of her feelings about Billow back to the surface. She came up with another reason to go abroad, this time to visit her school friend, Mary. But once again, Juliet's real motive was to try to see Billow. She left in May of 1884, two years after deciding to give Billow up, and four years after having met him in the first place. Even though she was there to visit Mary, Juliet accepted an invitation to stay with the Lowe sisters. And of course, this was because she hoped it would let her run into their brother. This time, this worked. Juliet and Billow confessed their love to each other in person. And then once again, they decided, because of all those reasons from two years ago that still existed, not to pursue it. Juliet reunited with Mary's family in Scotland, and they were a little annoyed to learn what had been going on with that visit to the Lowe's. And before she went back to the United States, Juliet paid the Lowe's yet another visit. While she was there, she and Billow saw one another again, and then the two of them decided, in spite of all of those (laughs) logical reasons that they had previously decided uh, against it, to actually try to be together. About six months later, in January of 1885, the ear pain that had been troubling Juliet off and on for much of her life became really acute. She went to a specialist who tried a procedure involving silver nitrate, and there were some complications, and that led to even more pain and the loss of most of her hearing in that ear. Billow was visiting at the time, and he was there for Juliet as she went through a long series of procedures and visits to specialists, all to try to repair the damage to her ear. And this was what led Juliet's father, William, to alter his opinion about whether Billow was right for his daughter. Juliet was in pain and felt terrible about this whole situation, not just because of her health, but also because a lot of blame was being thrown around about exactly whose fault this situation was. Billow boosted her spirits, and William reluctantly agreed to give the couple his blessing. William's blessing came with some conditions, though. Billow had to live within his financial means. The couple needed to spend at least six months of each year in Savannah. And Billow's father, Andrew, had to agree that Billow would continue to have his financial support. There was just no way that William was going to allow his daughter to get married if there was a chance that her husband might wind up cut off from his inheritance for some reason, which would have left him with no way of supporting her. Finally, William and Andrew finished their negotiation for the marriage, which included a year-long engagement, starting when Billow headed back to England in February of 1886. But 
What none of the Gordons really knew at this point was that Billow's reputation back in London would have been considered scandalous in Savannah. He ran in the same circles as Edward Albert, also known as Bertie, Prince of Wales, whose life was full of affairs and scandals. The Gordons and their friends all knew about the reputation of the Prince of Wales, but they didn't know that Billow was connected to that same circle and was regarded in kind of the same way. They got a glimpse of it during the engagement, though, when Billow placed a bet on a horse race that was so big that it was covered in the press. The Gordons were livid, and Juliet tried to downplay the bet as something that he had placed on behalf of several other people and not something that was entirely his own money. Then, on June 27, 1886, Billow's father died. He came into his whole inheritance. Juliet and Billow decided not to put off the wedding in light of Andrew's death. They got married on December 21st, 1886. After the wedding, as guests were showering the couple with rice, Juliet got a grain of rice stuck in her ear, that same ear that had gone through all of those complications the year before. After the honeymoon, when she hadn't been able to dislodge it, Juliet went to the doctor to try to have the rice removed. And all of this damaged her ear even further, and she lost almost all of her hearing in it. She also contracted bronchitis and spent most of the first months of her marriage too sick to even climb the stairs in their home. In early May of 1887, Juliet started losing the hearing in her other ear as well. She consulted a doctor who suggested that it was a sympathetic reaction to her previous hearing loss. She saw a number of specialists and tried different treatments over the rest of her life, but none of them ever restored her hearing. It was something that sometimes she would improve as maybe her eardrum healed up a little, but then a lot of times it would get worse again. Her hearing loss didn't affect her speech, but she couldn't always understand people when they were speaking to her. Juliet had a really hard time adjusting to being a gentleman's wife. At first, they didn't have a permanent home of their own, and they were leasing large estates in England and Scotland. Billow finally bought a 55-acre estate in Warwickshire in 1889, which they expanded to include 20 bedrooms and huge stables. Juliet really loved finally having a permanent place of her own. It also made it easier for her to be a little philanthropic. Billow was really opposed to the idea of her dedicating herself to philanthropy full-time. He seemed to think that it would lead her to judge his life of idleness. So she tended to do smaller things, like visiting people in need and donating vegetables and flowers from their gardens. Juliet really wanted to be useful, though, and she finally got the chance to do that during the Spanish-American War. Her mother, back during the Civil War, had hated being separated from her father. So Nellie had made the decision that she would accompany William to Florida, where he was going to be serving in the military, and she was going to start a convalescent home for soldiers there. Juliet traveled back to the United States. She joined her mother in Florida, and together they cared for men who were recovering from illnesses like malaria, measles, and typhoid. Juliet loved having meaningful work to do, and when her father was transferred and Nellie planned to go with him, Juliet volunteered to stay behind and continue on with the convalescent home. But then the war ended in August of 1898, and that home was closed down. Not long after this, Juliet had another major change in her life, and we will get to that after another quick sponsor break. Juliet's marriage to Billow was really struggling by the turn of the 20th century. 
Juliet had surgery to remove abscesses and cysts from her abdomen, and this may have affected her reproductive system as well. Regardless of whether that was a factor, she and Billow did not have any children, and Juliet really blamed herself about this, and she felt a lot of shame about it. It was I mean, there's still some stigma about people who want to have children and can't today. This was worse when she was living, and she she really felt ashamed of the fact that she had not had any children. As their marriage went on, Billow spent more and more time away from home, and his expenses became really extravagant, including spending a lot on betting and on racehorses. Billow also became involved with another woman named Anna Bridges Bateman, and it's not clear exactly when that relationship started, but Juliet hosted Anna at their home at least once, not knowing that she and Billow were having an affair. Anna also stayed in their home after Juliet did know about that affair, but Juliet felt like she couldn't really say anything about it. By 1901, Juliet was talking about pursuing a divorce, and this was something that English law made very difficult. The most logical option was to seek a divorce on the grounds of infidelity. It was clearly what was going on, but she didn't really want to do this because it meant publicizing to the world that her husband had an affair. And Billow did not want her to do it either because it would have meant publicizing to the world who he was having an affair with. In 1902, they separated. By that fall, Juliet was realizing that she was happier without Billow than she had been with him. And Juliet started visiting family and friends and traveling more. After a while, Juliet started hearing rumors that Billow was drinking heavily and that his health was increasingly poor. He died on June 8, 1905, at which point he and Juliet were still separated but not divorced. He had requested for Anna to handle his funeral arrangements, which the family agreed to. And he had also rewritten his will, leaving almost everything to Anna, including what was supposed to be Juliet's annual allowance. With the help of Billow's sisters, Juliet successfully contested the will. Anna still got a sizable inheritance, but Juliet got a lump sum, an annuity, and the Lowe's house in Savannah. It was enough for her to be comfortable. Less than a year later, an old family friend named Archie Hunter proposed to her, but she turned him down, describing herself as too old and deaf to try again, especially since she was not in love with him. She had a whole lot of like, I just don't love that guy. He (laughs) seems to be into me, but I'm not that into him. For the next several years after her estranged husband's death, Juliet traveled the world. She visited relatives, and she did some charitable work. And in a lot of ways, she was enjoying herself, but she still wanted something to do. As always, she wanted to be useful, but she couldn't really find a cause that really just captured her heart. This lack of direction changed basically overnight when she met General Sir Robert Baden-Powell in 1911. Baden-Powell was regarded as a war hero for his leadership during the siege of Mafeking in the Boer Wars. He was also the founder of the Boy Scouts. I have that siege on my list for a a potential future episode because, of course, it is a lot more complicated than that. Uh, And Baden-Powell is not universally regarded as a hero, depending on who you're talking to. Uh, But we've also had just a lot of 19th and 20th century lately, so it may be on, like, a little farther down the road. So uh, his being the founder of the Boy Scouts makes it sound as though founding the Boy Scouts was something he intentionally set out to do, but really it was almost an accident. During his career with the British Army, 
Baden-Powell wrote a couple of books about scouting. They were meant to teach military men about reconnaissance and about being a soldier. And then when he got back to Britain after serving in the Boer Wars, he was surprised to discover that groups of boys had been using these books to organize themselves into little scouting patrols, often with their own names for the patrol and their own uniforms. At the time, British society was concerned about whether boys and young men were self-reliant enough and whether British citizens were adequately prepared from a military perspective. So people started calling for Baden-Powell to formalize these patrols, and the result of that was the Boy Scouts. And, of course, there were girls who were interested in scouting as well, and some girls had formed their own patrols already or had tried to join in with the boys. But Baden-Powell and others thought that it was best to separate these groups by gender. So he enlisted his sister Agnes to start the corresponding Girl Guides. When Juliet Gordon-Lowe met Robert Baden-Powell and learned about the scouting movement, that was it. At the age of 51, Lowe had found her life's work. Scouting combined so many traits that had been central to her life and her worldview. She had always wanted to be helpful. She had a strong sense of civic duty. She loved the outdoors, including hiking and hunting. Some of the most important relationships in her life were friendships with other girls, now women, that she had made when she was young. Her religious faith and her compassion and her idea that childhood should be fun and happy, it was all right there in the scouting movement. She and Baden-Powell began working together within the scouting movement in Britain. In 1911, Lowe helped establish two Girl Guy patrols in Scotland and one in England. Then in 1912, she and Baden-Powell traveled across the Atlantic to bring the scouting movement to the United States. It's clear that there was an attraction between the two of them. And according to some accounts, at one point while they were working together in the UK, he proposed to her. But on that voyage to New York, Baden-Powell became secretly engaged to another passenger named Olive St. Clair Soames. We don't really know how Lowe felt about this. She found out along with the rest of the world when it was formally announced more than six months later. Once she got back to Savannah, Lowe called her cousin Nina Anderson Pape and said, come right over, I've got something for the girls of Savannah and all America, and we're going to start it tonight and then they got to work establishing Savannah's first Girl Guides patrol. And although a lot of things about this patrol have become part of Girl Scout lore, including exactly when they had their first meeting, who their first members were, and that one of Juliet's nieces was the first to be enrolled, the documentation of those first few months is pretty fuzzy. Regardless, though, there were several Girl Guide patrols in Savannah, including one at the Savannah Female Orphan Asylum. Lowe particularly wanted the Girl Scouts to be a positive force in the lives of girls who were living in poverty, so she made a special effort to make sure that patrols were established for them and that participating was affordable. Those first patrols in Savannah often included Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish girls together. But in general, the patrols were separated by social class. Organizers worried that upper-class parents would prohibit their daughters from participating if less affluent girls were included in the same patrol. And in Savannah, they were also segregated by race. Separate patrols were established for African-American girls, including one that was led by one of the Gordon family's household staff. Juliet's family was happy to see that she had found something to occupy herself and that it was clearly making her so happy But at the same time, they also remembered her being, quote, Crazy Daisy and the group that they nicknamed the Helpless Hands. 
So they really thought Juliet might make a mess of this whole thing or just lose interest. But the opposite happened. Girl guides continued to grow in 1912. Juliet started contacting the leaders of similar organizations for girls, encouraging them to become part of the Girl Guides. It was clear that only one organization could be viewed as the sister organization to the Boy Scouts, and Juliet wanted that to be the Girl Guides. So she tried to get the Girl Pioneers, the Campfire Girls, and other organizations to join her. This was not altogether successful, and sometimes it became outright acrimonious. Lowe had an ongoing dispute with Linda Beard, who had established the Girl Pioneers in 1912. And Clara Lysitra Lane had also formed a group called the Girl Scouts of America in Chicago, and she went on to accuse Lowe of stealing her idea and the name for it. But Juliet Gordon Lowe persisted. She carried on after her father died in 1912, after she learned about Robert Baden-Powell's secret engagement, and after other women she recruited to help moved on to different things. She also traveled back and forth between the U.S. and the U.K., helping the movement in Europe and bringing new ideas and techniques back to the U.S. with her. She also focused on taking this movement national in the United States, and to that end, she changed the name from Girl Guides to Girl Scouts, which is something a lot of people did not want her to do at all, including Robert Baden-Powell. She did, though, eventually convince him to approve of the change. Lowe also established a national headquarters for the Girl Scouts in Washington, D.C., and it started growing into a formal organization with a professional paid staff. In 1913, the first U.S.-specific Girl Scout handbook was published called How Girls Can Help Their Country. As all of this was going on, Lowe was continuing to struggle with her health. All of the same illnesses and conditions that had been part of her life so far continued to be present. She also underwent radium treatment for her gout in the 19-teens and experienced ongoing back pain from an injury. None of this stopped her work, though. She kept crossing the Atlantic and recruiting leaders and raising money and evangelizing about the scouting movement. By 1914, it was essentially a full-time job. In 1915, not directly connected to scouting, Lowe was awarded U.S. Patent 1124925, liquid container for use with garbage cans or the like, which was basically a folding pattern for a sheet of waterproof paper that could be used in conjunction with a garbage can to hold liquid and disposed of along with its contents. She was also awarded a design patent for the trefoil design of the first Girl Scout badge. I guess this could really be tangentially connected to scouting because it reminds me of the kinds of trash cans we would have at camp. Mm-hmm. Lowe's mother died in February of 1917, and by then, World War I had been going on for nearly three years, and Girl Scouts had been flourishing as groups of girls dedicated themselves to the war effort. They were raising money and rolling bandages and working with the Red Cross and generally trying to be of service. There were, of course, plenty of administrative headaches and growing pains throughout all of this. And there had been concerns that scouting was going to cause girls to become too masculine or too headstrong. But in general, by the end of World War I, the Girl Scouts were recognizable all across the U.S. and generally were associated with being helpful, kind, and respectful. And then, by the 1920s, people had started to see Girl Scouts as an alternative to the flapper lifestyle. Biographer Stacey Cordry described it as, quote, the antidote to flappers. 
Scouting advocates also viewed the movement as a force for world peace because children around the world were participating in an organization that had a focus on duty and service and common goals no matter what location they were in. All of this helped to keep the organization going when those immediate wartime needs were over. Throughout all of this, the Girl Scout organization occupied an interesting place in terms of social issues. Often it tried to remain politically neutral. For example, the organization did not take a formal position on the issue of women's suffrage. But at the same time, in some ways, it was more progressive than other similar organizations. When many organizations banned Black members in any capacity, some of the first patrols in the North were integrated, and troops for African-American girls existed in the South almost from the beginning. The first troop for Native American girls was established in 1918, although there were almost certainly Native girls involved in scouting before that. In 1922, the first Latina group was established in Houston, Texas. And in 1923, at a time when disability was far more visibly stigmatized than it is in the U.S. today, the organization decided that scouts with disabilities would be eligible to earn the Golden Eaglet, which was its highest honor. And this was something that Lowe argued for strenuously. As she was making those arguments, Juliet Gordon-Lowe was also being treated for breast cancer, which may have been connected to her earlier radium treatments. By this point, she had stepped down as president of the Girl Scouts, taking the role of founder and focusing on expanding scouting internationally. She told almost no one about her illness, and she continued working even as she got sicker and developed lead poisoning because of one of her treatments. Juliet Gordon-Lowe continued to work for the international scouting movement until her death on January 17, 1927, at the age of 66. By that point, the Girl Scouts had 168,000 members and had held national and international conferences and established camps for girls. The Girl Scouts had moved from homemade uniforms that varied from one group to another to standard uniforms that could be purchased, and troops had also started selling cookies to raise money. Troops had been established all across the United States, including Alaska and Hawaii, which weren't states yet, and in Puerto Rico. Juliet Gordon-Lowe is one of only three Americans to be awarded the Silver Fish, which is the highest honor in Girl Guides. She earned that award in 1919, and honors and awards have continued after her death. In 1944, a U.S. Liberty ship was named the SS Juliet Lowe. Juliet Gordon-Lowe has also been commemorated on a stamp and had schools named after her and been inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame in Seneca Falls. Her birthplace was registered as a National Historical Landmark in 1965, and a federal building complex was named after her in 1983. In 2012, she was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Then today, of course, the Girl Scouts of the United States of America still exists. There are 2.5 million members, including about 750,000 adult members and leaders. And man, those cookies. And the cookies. <laughs> I, I'm not going to lie. Um, I did not imagine that somebody who started an organization that has so much focus on being self-reliant and supporting other girls would have spent so much of her young adult life chasing after a boy. <laughs> like, that just surprised me a little. Not, really? It shouldn't, though. It, I might have done the same thing if I had been in her place. Yeah, totally. I mean, I was, like, one of those kids that was raised by a dad who was very much, like, from the time I was little. Like, you got to take care of yourself all the time. 
But I still would have, you know, chased after a, a boy, I imagine. I wish it had been a boy that was uh, more worthy, worthy of her affection. <laughs> the heart wants what it wants, Tracy. Yeah. Do you have a little bit of listener mail? Yeah, this is from Janine, and it's um, it's related to this podcast, which just has a completely uh, p- completely coincidental connection to another recent podcast. So Janine says, I'm quite behind on your podcast. So I just listened to the episode from back in February on Mary Winston Jackson and was delighted to hear she was a Girl Scout leader. I am also a Girl Scout leader and was just so excited and moved to hear about her work mentoring girls and especially in integrating the councils in her area. I was not surprised that she continued to mentor young people throughout her life. I think one of the most rewarding parts of being a Girl Scout leader is the opportunity to mentor girls and young women. And I think Jackson would have agreed with me. I just talked to my Daisy troop about courageous and strong women this week as we reviewed the courageous and strong part of the Girl Scout law. I was sadly unfamiliar with Mary Winston Jackson before listening to your episode, so she did not feature in the discussion, but you can bet she will next time we talk about it. Thanks so much for the work you do. My degrees are in history and related subjects, and I appreciate the research you put into the show and the source lists you attach at the end. Keep up the good work, Janine. And then Janine also sent us cat pictures, which we always appreciate. Um, Her cats are a tabby named Walnut and a black one named Hildegard, of course, named for Hildegard von Bingen. I was delighted by all of that and delighted to see these cats. So thank you, Janine. Uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then you can find us all over social media at Miss in History. That is where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. You can come to our website, which is mistinhistory.com, where you will find show notes for all the episodes Holly and I have worked on together, a searchable archive of every episode ever, and that's where we will have the information about any upcoming shows that we have out in the world. Uh, You can also subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 